Please stand if you're able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Please read with me the verses in bold. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and as its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water from, with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Sam. Well, I bring you greetings uh, from... Our, my co-pastor, Daniel Yoon. Daniel is preaching uh, at uh, a sister church in the pocket this morning, uh, Faith Presbyterian Church, where he is good friends with the pastor, and uh, we're serving him this morning. Uh, so we're grateful to be able to do that, and, uh, and you as a church support the church wider uh, by allowing that, so thank you. Um. I love weddings. They're one of my favorite parts of my job. Uh, somebody asked me one time how many weddings I've done. I'm not sure. Tens, maybe hundreds. I have the honor to officiate the wedding of many of my friends. Some of them are in this room. Some of them are on the live stream. I got to speak at my own brother's wedding. One of my brothers stand in another brother's wedding. I've had the privilege of being the pastor at the marriages of young people who met each other and fell in love in our ministry. Uh, one of our, my wife Olivia and I's favorite things to do is premarital counseling with couples. We ask them to meet with us five or six times uh, before the wedding, and we use that time to talk about God's design for marriage and what a covenant really is as opposed to a contract we love those meetings because they are special protected times for us in which we can be raw and brutally honest with people about how much we have struggled and how much we struggled when we were in their place. And we love those times because each time we do it, we get to reflect back on how good and faithful and generous God has been to us in spite of ourselves and in spite of our sin. Ephesians 5, to 33, which uh, Samantha helped us read this morning, is the longest and most specific set of instructions on Christian marriage in the scripture. So it would seem that, uh, that any 
that no Christian marriage or preparation for Christian marriage should be without counsel from this passage. And yet this passage is often treated like other places in the scripture that make us uncomfortable. So we skip the scary parts at the end and the parts in the prophets that we don't like in that passage in Ephesians. I once arrived as the guest pastor for a wedding in another state and I was informed by my host that I could speak in the wedding on any passage of scripture that I wanted except Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. It was a good thing that that wasn't the plan because it would have been quite a pickle. One of the reasons that we at Grace choose to preach through entire books of the Bible is exactly so that the preacher, along with the congregation, doesn't get to skip anything. Isn't, yeah, we, we get to be challenged with the whole counsel of God, the parts that make us want to sing for joy and the parts that make us uncomfortable. And so if this is God's word, we don't get to pick and choose. Uh, if we want to give God's word authority in our life, then we don't get to pick what parts to skip. So nonetheless, uh, as we approach this passage, I can't help but approach it with a, a great amount of trepidation. And I think that we should acknowledge some of the reasons why we should approach it with trepidation. First, any passage about any relationship that uses words like submission and headship is suspicious in our culture. Not to mention that this is one that is addressing the dynamics between men and women or a man and a woman. And we live in a culture that is skeptical and cynical about institutions and traditions that have been used by some to perpetuate the power of one group and suppression of another group. So we need to approach this passage with trepidation. Secondly, I think uh, it's true that this and other passages like it have been misused to support an unbiblical view of women as less than or inferior to men. It's been used to proof text gender roles that are more cultural than scriptural and to underpin a kind of chauvinism that denies the very heart of the gospel. And so today I hope that as we look at this passage, we'll see that God's design for marriage does as much to challenge those kinds of traditional prejudice as it does to challenge the contemporary desire to think that the role of a man and a woman is interchangeable in marriage. Third, I come with trepidation uh, because sermons on passages like this can sometimes serve to reinforce a church culture that puts marriage on a pedestal in a way that can feel marginalizing to those who are single. I don't think, in fact, I think it's clear that scripture does not prescribe marriage for everyone. Jesus was single and we esteem him. The scripture tells us that he was the embodiment of what it means to be the fulfillment of humanity. And so, uh, Marriage must be, therefore, one of the tools or one of the institutions that God has given us um, to use to create in us godliness. But it can't be an expectation for all. Or Jesus himself would have been disqualified. 
So I hope today that as we look at this passage, we'll see how God has designed biblical marriage not only for those who are married, but as a signpost pointing everyone who observes it towards the love and the faithfulness of Christ. So this morning, let's look at these, uh, we'll look for these things as we explore this passage in three parts. We'll call it the house table, headship and submission, and a profound mystery. First, the house table. One of the things that Olivia and I talk about with couples in premarital counseling is family systems, how your family of origin worked, uh, where you grew up. And uh, we've heard some interesting stuff. My dad says, says someone, my dad never changed a diaper. Or my mom never changed a tire. Or mom managed the finances and bought dad a fishing boat with the extra money she saved. Or dad does all of the cooking and has written and published several cookbooks. How should a household run? Is that what this passage is about? If I had to summarize uh, the, the previous part of the chapter, the, the part of chapter 5 that Daniel preached on last week, I would read to you the first two verses and the last verse to answer the question, how do we practically apply the gospel in our lives? Here's the answer that Paul gives. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Today, we will follow the lead of Ephesians and we will get ultra practical. How does walking in love and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ look in the common relationships of a household, husband and wife, parents and children, Masters and servants, we'll, we'll see next week. Martin Luther called this passage the hostiful, which is actually a German word that means household rules, but it, his word often gets translated house table. And so uh, that's what it has come to be called. And apparently, a house table or a, a code of conduct for households was not an uncommon thing in the Greco-Roman world, in the New Testament world. It would, it would have been common uh, for, for a, a set of expectations or conduct to be set down uh, in the Greco-Roman world that saw the family as the basic building block for the state. Aristotle has a famous list of rules for household conduct that would help lay a foundation for the hierarchical Roman society um, designed to glorify and empower Caesar and designed to keep those who served Caesar, specifically the men who served him, in power. So when Paul writes a Christian houseful, he's using the form of a household code that already exists and uh, he, is, he wants to use it to show us how Christian marriage is designed to glorify and empower a different kind of kingdom. And how the gospel transforms our understanding of authority and of structure. The world says authority and structure exist to empower those who hold them. The gospel says be imitators of Christ. And he used authority and the structure that was his 
the structure that he controlled to empower and save and redeem those who depended on him. Paul's house to full is subversive. He does not only address those in society who would have expected to be addressed, the subordinates. That's how Aristotle's household code goes. But Paul addresses both parties in each relationship, wife and husband, children and parents, servants and masters. And he has more to say, actually, more confrontation, more expectation for those in his day who probably weren't expecting to be addressed at all, which was the husband and the master and the parent. He actually has more than twice as much to say to husbands, more instruction and exhortation than to wives. So verse 22 and 23 start us off, and they have, and they have within them those two big words, submit and head. 22 says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And 23 says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Submit comes first grammatically in the sentence, but before we can understand what submission is supposed to be, I think we need to know why it is instructed. According to the scripture, according to the structure of the sentence in the scripture, the answer is, why is submission instructed? Because the husband is the head of the wife. So I think we need to understand what the scripture is talking about when it uses that word head uh, before we can understand what it's talking about when it talks about submission. And Paul spends twice as much time on that anyway. So let's look at the passage and uh, in this portion, I want to I talk about what headship is not, what headship is, what submission is not, and what submission is. Let's talk about that word head. So looking back, um, Olivia and I had a really long wedding. There was like three or four worship songs, parental blessings from both parents, a full-length sermon, and all of that before we did our vows on a hot and humid August day last century. And uh, the most vivid memory of that day, unfortunately, or fortunately, is that when Olivia and I turned to one another and we took each other's hands and the preacher said, repeat after me, and we began to say our vows, uh, I began to repeat after him and say my vows uh, to my bride. And as I spoke, I heard a loud whoosh and a clunk. And I said, what just happened? And Olivia said, Bobby just fainted. <laughs> sure enough, our best man had passed out into the arms of my brother who was standing behind him who laid him flat on the ground. And the, my favorite part is we've got this t really grainy old wedding video and Bobby literally just disappears off the screen. Whew, he's gone. Uh, let's be honest. There are way too many guys who disappear right after their own weddings as well. The pursuing lover, gone 
disappeared. The responsible partner and communicator fading. The spiritual leader nowhere to be found. The passage says that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So the, the word head, the Greek word uh, kephale, is important. Paul uses it to describe Jesus' relationship to the church. Jesus described himself as a bridegroom who has crossed heaven and earth to lay down his life for his bride, his people. And so on some level, uh, headship must convey a sense of responsibility for that which God has given into your care. Headship that imitates Christ cannot be self-absorbed, self-interested, self-involved, for we know that Christ gave up, his interest, gave up his interests, even that of being in very nature God, to serve the interests of his bride, which is his church. Headship cannot equate to passivity. We were not pursued and saved by a passive God. Headship uh, cannot be using an authority as an excuse to leave a wife without support in the day-to-day schedule or without uh, help in the care and discipline of children or uh, leaving her responsible to react and accommodate a husband's uncommunicated schedule because it's his prerogative as the head. That kind of operation just cannot be squared with the way that Jesus loved his bride, the church, and gave himself up for her. Neither can manipulation or abuse or authoritarianism. While we're right to be concerned by a passage like this, that husbands might abuse it and use it to abuse the authority of their position, become dictators in their homes, we should be equally as concerned that, unfortunately, Abdication of responsibility is sometimes more common from men in marriage. What headship is? So what is headship? It seems uncomfortably clear from the context that headship is some expression of authority. But too often I, th- I think we think of authority and we think of it both as an indication of superiority and a license Uh, for control and for power. Headship is not superiority. Biblical headship in marriage is the practice of voluntary submission and leadership between equals. Not a superior and an inferior, but both, the scripture tells us, man and woman, husband and wife, created in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them and designed them to come together and complete that image in relationship. Our theology tells us that Jesus Christ and God the Father, two members of the Trinity, are equal in power and greatness and dignity. The Son is not inferior to the Father. They are both fully and truly God, and yet we learn that our salvation depends on Jesus' willingness to submit to the Father and give his life as a ransom for our sin. Headship is not superiority. It's also not a license for control and power. We're used to people claiming authority and demanding compliance because of their title or operating as if they're above the law because of their position. 
but there's a different kind of authority. It's the kind of authority that someone like Mother Teresa has. She, she has somehow this authority to speak and even teach popes and presidents because of decades of humble service and life sacrifice amongst the poor. Headship authority has something to do with that kind of authority, wrought and earned with service. Christ's headship of the church is clearly one of authority. We submit to him and to his word, and yet his authority is expressed through sacrificial service. He discovers our needs, and he meets them. So what is headship for? The passage describes for us what Christ does for the church as the purpose or model for what headship in marriage is supposed to be. It says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The message paraphrase of this passage says it like this. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her dressing her in dazzling white silk and radiant in holiness. The passage says that Jesus gave himself for the church to sanctify her, and that word sanctify really means to set her aside for a special or sacred purpose. This is what Christ has done for his people, for the church. Jesus sets the church as the apple of his eye and sets her apart for himself and for his exclusive love and care. I will die for you. His death-defying faithfulness for her. When a husband sets a wife apart, when he gives her a category in his heart that is all her own, a category in his affection, he adorns her with something profound. When he dedicates himself to looking at her and desiring her alone, when he commits himself to forsaking the desire of all other women, whether they're in the room or on a screen, he gives her a taste of what it will look like when she someday experiences the affection of a loving God who rejoices over her in singing, as the Psalms say. Headship means faithfulness, sexual faithfulness, emotional faithfulness. When it says Jesus cleansed her with washing of water in the word, it seems like a clear reference to baptism and the teaching of Scripture. Those are the things that the church does to saturate ourselves in the truth of the gospel and the grace of God. It would seem that the head of every family is expected to be responsible to assure that the houseful of a believing home has a passion for the salvation of every one of its members and a table where the word of God is open. Headship is taking spiritual responsibility. Our passage looks forward to the day when Jesus' kingdom will come. Often, Jesus called that day the wedding feast of the Lamb, when he will present the church to himself spotless and finally completely whole in his love and fulfilled in his purpose. He has an end in mind that for his people that he is dedicated to seeing through to completion. How many 
husbands have the fulfillment of their wife's full potential at the forefront of their minds. On their list of life goals, number one, see her flourish and use her gifts to the absolute extent of their abilities. How many husbands are dedicated to finding her calling from God and fulfilling it with every resource at their disposal? This, apparently, is what headship is supposed to be. Headship is empowerment of those that you serve. It's faithfulness, it's spiritual responsibility, it's empowerment. And so, husband, who makes you the head of your family? It's clear that God calls you to be the head, to take on uh, this role, but the person with the power to actually make you the head is your wife. You see, headship is something that is given by one equal to another out of reverence for Christ. And that's helpful in figuring out what submission is supposed to be. What is submission? Or let's start with what submission is not. Submission does not mean that every woman is subject to every man. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands. This doesn't seem to be an instruction about who can be the boss in the workplace or who can hold elected office in the world, but specifically an instruction for two equals, one man and one woman, who have decided to covenant with one another in a marriage. Submission is not accepting a role of no influence or no consequence, having no say in things that matter. It's not a sign of weakness or unimportance. Think about Christ. It was actually his submission to God the Father at the cross that accomplished God's most powerful purpose for us. The end of death, the defeat of sin, the redemption of his people. You might say that Jesus' submission is a demonstration of his power. Certainly, it's a sign of his importance in our salvation. Submission is not going along with a husband's selfishness or abiding or abetting his sinful plans and his desires. And it certainly doesn't make any room for enduring any kind of abuse, whether that's emotional or physical or sexual or spiritual. You simply cannot square any of these things with the submission that is defined as the church to Christ or out of the, as the mutual submission of believers one to another out of reverence for Christ. So what is submission? Submission is something that must be given. It can't be demanded or it won't be genuine. A wife has the power to make her husband the head, which is what God has called him to be. Submission, Paul says, is essential to understanding the mutual completion that God promises in marriage. He quotes in our passage, Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one, one flesh. When a woman joins her husband and makes her other commitments, her other loves, all of uh, the other people in her life, uh, secondary to this new commitment. Secondary to the priority of this new mission, this new family. She, this, the, the book of Genesis tells us, is the answer to the man's prayers. 
In Genesis, it says that God said, it was not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. But what we lose is that the word that the Old Testament uses there for helper is the same word that the Psalms use when it says, I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from you, maker of heaven, creator of the earth. We're talking about saving help here. She is the key to the fulfillment of God's call that we would be fruitful and multiply and bear his image throughout the world. Submission is the commitment to provide saving help to a guy who is lost without it. When it says, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. It does not mean that her every decision and every move should be controlled by her husband. It's an instruction, uh, it's, it's instructing her not to keep anything aside, but to give everything to this relationship. She, she is being encouraged to have no area in her heart uncommitted, no secret fantasy that's being uh, quietly fed, no secret bank account that he doesn't know about just in case. No area in her life that isn't part of this new and, uh, and mutual mission of their marriage. Submission is aligning your life and passion behind the call and mission of God for your family, for which God will hold the husband accountable. It's a profound mystery. Marriage design, of course, I, th I think, would be arbitrary. Uh, we could argue that marriage is nothing more than a social tradition if it were not clear in the passage that this whole thing isn't really about marriage. Marriage isn't the goal. It's not the crown. It's a signpost pointing those who participate in it and those who are willing to revere it and observe it it's a signpost that points us to Christ and to his church. The ultimate faithfulness of a servant head who uses his authority to save the ones he loved, Christ the bridegroom. The radiance of the church, the bride of Christ, who finds herself when she joins her groom. The church chooses to believe in him, and we allow his service and his love to give us new life. It's a profound mystery. And most certainly, uh, I think that it's true. It needs to be said that uh, every husband is going to fail to be ahead. They're going to stumble and bumble and blow it. And they will need at that moment uh, to come in repentance to their wife and repentance to the king. It's true and accurate to say that every wife is going to fail uh, in submitting to the mission. She's going to stumble and bumble and do things wrong, do things uh, ununited. And that is the moment when she's called to come to her husband in repentance and to Christ 
in repentance. And the unique thing about that is that that's where marriage was designed to bring us anyway, to the feet of Jesus. It's designed to point onlookers to the feet of Jesus, and it's designed to point participants to the feet of Jesus and to his forgiveness. My friends, uh, as we said at the beginning, uh, not everyone uh, will be married. And yet, uh, because that's not the end goal, uh, actually Christ is the end goal. While not everyone will be married, everyone is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, 